Welcome to Fitzarns Property Exchange, hosted by Pearl Skeltimer, designed to keep you informed and captivated about the South African residential property market. Subscribe to our channel today and enjoy conversations with some of the most influential, innovative and interesting industry experts, stakeholders and scheme executives as they render input in today's property market. Hi, good day. I'm Paul Skeltema, the CEO of Fatani Estates, and once again, very welcome to our property exchange. Ladies and gents, I actually have to pinch myself. I can't believe who made themselves available to talk to me today. So let me start off by telling you I'm going to use half of our time just to inform you of this girl's incredible resume. Today, I'm talking to Zerlinda, the one and only Fanamerva. Having grown up in community schemes, Zerlinda perused her passion by graduating from the University of Salambosch with her BA, LLB, LLM, cum laude degrees. Whilst completing her LLM thesis, specifically focused on the constitutionality of sectional title rules, Zerlinda undertook a comparative study of strata title in Melbourne, Australia, having worked as a research intern for the South African Research Chair in Property Law. Zerlinda contributed towards various property laws, neighbour law and sectional title duta publications. After graduating, Zerlinda joined Pam Golding Property Management Services, managing a portfolio of sectional title schemes and homeowners associations. So she knows what battle we are fighting. Following her, this hands-on experience, Zelinda then joined the sectional title department of Bicari Bolo Mariano Attorneys, BBM, where she completed her articles and clerkship with Marina Consis. After the completion of her articles and admission as attorney of the High Court, Zelinda joined Graham Paddock at Paddock's as a specialist community scheme consultant, providing legal advice and training to the industry, including the Community Schemes Ombud Service. Zerlinda then went full circle by rejoining PGPMS as a general manager. As trustee in both her professional and personal capacity and member of various types of community schemes, Zerlinda lives and breathes all aspects of community scheme living. Having now left the field of property management, I wish I could have joined her, to turn her ultimate dream into reality, Zelinda has co-founded TVDM Consultants, where her many years of practical experience allows her to continue making a mark in the community industry. And a mark she makes indeed. Wow. Welcome, Zelinda. Thank you so much, Paul. I had a couple of giggles there, but I had myself on mute. I didn't want to interrupt you. I always uh, blush a little bit when somebody does my my intro, other than the fact that it is tremendously long and that's the watered-down version of it. Um, it makes me realize that uh, I still have so much to achieve and how much time has flown 
And uh, it reminds me to go make a hair appointment to go and cover the greys because uh, age has definitely caught up with me terribly. But thank you for that lovely introduction. It's, it means the absolute world to me that uh, that uh, you've you've put it that way. And I'm, I'm really, really honored to be here with you because I think that you deserve a, an introduction that is triple the honor of that, of what you have done in this industry and how you've made a mark and continue to make a mark on this industry. So well done to you. Wow, thank you so much. So Linda, let's jump right into this. I can't think of a better person to discuss the following topic. We want to talk about annual general meetings, notices, and specifically um, the misconceptions people have about directions or restrictions placed on scheme executives. Um, we often get asked, please arrange for an AGM. And our first response is, but we don't have the audited financial statements yet, or it's not yet the end of the financial year. We don't care. Call, call an AGM. So won't you please start off by telling our listeners exactly what the difference is between an annual general meeting and a special general meeting? Okay, fantastic. So the main difference between an annual general meeting and a special general meeting is that an annual general meeting has a prescribed agenda, whereas a special general meeting is just that it's for a special business item. Generally, an item and not items in plural. An annual general meeting is held annually, not necessarily annually in the course of 12 months, but the financial year of the body corporate. And sometimes that does run over depending on what the situation is with the body corporates, either a delay in the audits, projects that are being undertaken, a maintenance repair and replacement plan that is needed to be prepared, COVID, the effects of COVID, um, you know, whether or not the financial year needs to be amended, anything along those lines. And then a special general meeting is any other meeting that is held during the course of the year that's a members meeting in a body corporate that is not an annual general meeting, that is not necessarily for special business, and in other words, a unanimous or special resolution, but for uh, ordinary resolutions or even just for discussion matters as well, uh, but generally speaking for matters that were not dealt with at the annual general meeting, cannot be dealt with at the annual general meeting, cannot wait for the annual general meeting, and sometimes even business that was not able to be concluded at the annual general meeting. So that that is, in a nutshell, the differences between an annual general meeting and a special general meeting. Uh, listeners, I forgot to tell you, this lady talks fast. Too fast. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can the two be combined? Can you have special matters, even if it does require a special or a unanimous resolution, discussed at an annual general meeting? And how would that influence the process? Yes, most certainly. So you can definitely have an annual general meeting and a special general meeting combined. Very often I see a notice called a special annual general meeting. I love that one. Um, <laughs> it's not actually... Wow a special annual general meeting but it is uh, it's an annual general meeting with special business so you could either simply call it an annual general meeting and have a line item called special business uh, you can decide to have it at the beginning of the meeting or at the end of the meeting I always suggest that it's at the beginning of the meeting that way you assured of a quorum that people don't get uh, you know disinterested with the meeting or that there isn't you know a whole bunch of bun fights and people leave or uh, the trustees you know step down or 
uh, or anything happens during the course of the meeting and you, you lose your quorum or whatever it might be, or the situation in the body corporate changes, you know, the budget uh, might determine that the item of special business is no longer necessary. Uh, it's, it's really important that if a project has been put forward that needs to be voted on as a special or unanimous resolution or special business that it get dealt with uh, earlier on rather than later. But again, it really is dependent scheme to scheme. So that would then need to be called as a special general meeting. In other words, on 30 days notice, if it is a special or a unanimous resolution. If it is an ordinary resolution, then it's fine to be called on 14 days notice. And just a reminder, we're talking about body corporates here, not homeowners associations, that you need to look at uh, their constitutions or memorandums of incorporation. My dear colleague, Ruth Grunder, who I'm sure she's listening, being a a strong female portfolio manager, operations manager, and uh, legal eagle herself disagrees with me that only notices of special general meetings where special resolutions and unanimous resolutions are going to be tabled need to be sent via prepaid registered mail or hand delivery. She says that all notices need to be sent via prepaid mail or hand delivery. I don't agree with that. I'd be interested to hear your, your view on that, Paul, whether or not you believe that all notices need to be sent via uh, prepaid mail or hand delivery, or if only uh, special or unanimous resolutions need to be done that way. What do you What do you say about that? You are opening a Pandora's box because <laughs> I've heard I've, honestly I've heard so many opinions on this. But okay, you asked for my opinion, and my opinion is that only special and unanimous resolutions would require prepaid register post. But I came across something very interesting yesterday and I might sound a bit stupid, a managing agent here in Pretoria is sending mails per registered email. I've heard about that. Very interesting. Yeah, I actually want to investigate this because I think that could resolve uh, quite a bit of, of our problems in sending notices. But, yeah, it's called registered email. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to send you some information on that. Derek Lottering of iCompliance and Shirley Bailey kindly sent us some information on that. And I do think that if enough of us spend some attention looking into that and advertising that or marketing that, that can most certainly be uh, something to assist us practically in the industry when it comes to the prepaid registered mail. I know it, we're deviating a bit off topic here, but it used to really kill my soul when we used to send out hundreds of prepaid registered mail notices. Mm. And, and all of them come back, all of them are returned. Pretty much all of them would be returned. Oh. <laughs> really terrible. So to go back to, to end off the answer to your question, you can mm. combine it. Obviously, the notice periods would need to change depending on the nature of the business. Alternatively, if the pack is quite large and you do not want to send it all via prepaid registered mail, what you could do is send the special and unanimous resolution portion of the notice 30 days before before via prepaid registered mail or hand delivery, and then you can send the business of the annual general meeting 14 days before by email only. So that's an option. Or you can simply arrange it for two separate days. The difficulty always is that now one has to really immediately uh, diarize uh, two separate dates because you're almost guaranteed that no, you're not going really. to have a quorum. You don't have a quorum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're going to fill your diary up rather quickly going that way around. 
Yeah, that's the life of a managing agent. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, what I'd like to know, and like I said, I mentioned it at the beginning of our discussion, there's a, rather a, a bit of a misconception about directions or restrictions placed on the appointed scheme executives. Um, the reason why I say a misconception, I often attend meetings where the owners say, Trustees, you are not allowed to exceed the proposed or the accepted budget by more than 15,000. And that's a restriction and it ends there. And I said, well, what's the restriction about it? What are they supposed to do? Yes. Must they call a special general meeting every time they want to do this? Must they just inform the members by way of communication of some sort? And what happens if this 15,000 exceeding the approved budget is for um, an emergency that requires the or that falls within their authority in terms of the act maintenance for example a, a pipe burst um, it has to be dug up the paving has to be repaired and the insurance only pays a portion that of uh, they off so what is the difference between restriction and direction specifically so restrictions, I always summarize it at a meeting and, and I'm so happy that this specific topic was suggested because I always say to, to people at an annual general meeting that in my opinion, the two most important elements of an annual general meeting is the budget approval and the issue of directives and restrictions to the trustees. And no matter you know how many times I say it, when we get to this item on the agenda, the owners generally keep quiet or they ask what was minuted at last year's annual general meeting and they simply repeat mm -hmm. it. And I think that this item is so undervalued and probably misunderstood. And so the importance of, of understanding the difference between the two is important. The restriction, I always like to say, is telling the trustees what you cannot do, and the directive is telling the trustees what you can do. So to give an example... That's a good summary. I like that. Hmm. I, I battle to find examples for restrictions because the Act is pretty restrictive as to what trustees can't do. I mean, if you look at the Sectional Titles Act compared to the Sectional Title Schemes Management Act, there's, there's very few things that trustees can do now under the STSMA compared to what they could do under the Sectional Titles Act. Mm -hmm. So what you could say to, to the trustees at annual general meeting is, you know, you cannot terminate the managing agent's contract. I mean, we would all love that or you cannot drop below three trustees without coming to a special general meeting, or you cannot not fill your vacancy if there is a vacancy in the number of trustees. Mm. But the biggest one that we always find is this financial restriction that you use as an example. But it most certainly has to be worded very carefully. Otherwise, the trustees are simply going to not understand or not be guided correctly. They're not going to um, comply with it. They are going to end up with issues or they're going to run to the owners every two seconds because there hasn't been proper guidance. The directive is telling the trustees, come back to us midway through the year that we can discuss the budget or come back to us with three quotes for a new security provider or come back to us with a special levy before you decide to go and raise it or whatever it might be. So I, I like to summarize it that way. It might sound simplified, but at the end of the day, the nice thing about this agenda item is to tell the owners in your own words, what do you want your duly elected 
representatives to do for you. It's almost like voting for your political party. What do you want us to do for you? You know, you tell us, this is your opportunity and we will do it for you. And um, I think people really need to start using it a little bit, uh, a little bit more at meeting. I think, uh, and, and I say this with respect, I think most of our members doesn't realize or know exactly what it means. So therefore they keep quiet. Or alternatively, they have so much faith in the scheme executives they appointed that they don't deem it necessary either to restrict or to direct them. I know for a fact that at some of the meetings um, that the appointed scheme executives are actually dreading that point when it reaches this point on the agenda because is there a lot of work coming through to them, um, more responsibilities to fill than the normal? And you are quite right. It's a it's an item, a very important item on the agenda that is completely overlooked. And the members don't realize how much, what shall I say, power lies in, in that, where they actually have the opportunity to say, you may not do X, Y, and Z, or please give attention to A, B, C, D, and E. Yeah, quite good. There's another question I'd like to ask because this happened recently. Trustees revised the conduct rules. They called a special general meeting, 30 days notice. At the date of the meeting, no quorum of 33.3% could be rich. The meeting was then postponed to the next week same place, same time as the Act requires, and they then proceeded once again with no quorum present, but the meeting was called for 1,800 hours. And when no quorum was reached at that point, they proceeded. One of the members then took the matter to CSAS to say, they did not wait another 30 minutes at the postponed date, so therefore the meeting is called null and void. Is that correct? It's such a difficult one because my practical experience is that at most adjourned meetings, even fewer people that were at the initial initial meeting actually turn up, which is really sad. Most of the time, the managing agent or the trustees actually put even more effort into the adjourned meeting to get people to attend. You know, they, they ask people to attend, they get proxies, the proxies from the previous meeting is valid. So to have to wait for the second 30 minutes is is a, is a tall ask, but unfortunately it is a legal requirement. You know, you have to ask yourself, did that person that went to CSOS objecting to that meeting, number one, did they attend? Number two, did they participate in the entire meeting or did they try to get the meeting called off within the first 30 minutes? What was the reason that the body corporate went ahead with the meeting in that 30 minutes? You have to look at the entire picture. Um, I don't think it's as simple as saying the meeting is invalid. I think that there's a lot to look at around that picture, but black and white, yes, it would be invalid, but it's not as simple as that. Tough one. All right, I'm very sure in your experience, even as a co-founder of TVDM and your previous experience as managing agent, that you have come across quite a few interesting situations pertaining to procedure or conduct at an annual general meeting. Would you like to share some of that with us? (laughs) Um, Yeah, we always joke about being able to write a book. 
Um, I'm sure Actually, all we of should us do know. that, Linda. Let's let's do that because every at the beginning of every year, I start making notes of all the funny things that happen, and I think to myself, this is going to be a bestseller. And then I never complete it. So let's do something about it. <laughs> let's let's start off with the recorded webinar or something like that first, so we can all have a laugh before we start writing. My problem is the is the writing part of it. I prefer talking to writing as everybody knows um, so yeah we, can, we, can, we, we definitely have enough stories to entertain each other and ourselves I'm quite an emotional person for people that know me and I wear my heart on my sleeve and all those fun things so I do take on you know my clients problems and their disputes and things like that quite personally I have grown quite a hard shell since I started out in the industry I was quite a little pipsqueak when I first started out if I think about it to where I've come now and, you know, I many, many years ago, Prof. Paddock sat me down after a, a quite a, a quite a bad annual general meeting that he only afterwards told me that he had attended uh, many years before. And it was just as acrimonious when he attended it. And mm-hmm. he said to me, Zalinda, you're going to you've attended many, many meetings and you're still going to attend many more. And you're going to have to decide and you're going to have to decide right now if this is for you, if attending meetings and being a certain type of persona for your clients is for you or if it's not. And if it's for you, you're going to grab the opportunity and you're going to do your best. And you might not always like it, but you're going to be good at it. Or you're going to say no thank you to those opportunities and you're going to accept that it's not for you and you're not going to turn back. And I walked out of his office thinking like, oh, he doesn't have any faith in me. Like, how can he like not tell me it's okay? I must just dust myself off and try again, you know. And I was like, oh, I'm going to show him. I'm going to go to the next meeting. And uh, after a while, I thought about it. And I was like, you know what? He's right. You know, you, you put yourself in, in a very a precarious position. And, and some of the stories I've heard sometimes dangerous position going to some of these meetings. And if it's not your cup of tea, if you're not cut out for it, you're not cut out for it. And not every single meeting is going to be perfectly run. And some meetings are going to be quite acrimonious. And some meetings, you're going to have a hand in making it quite acrimonious. Mm. And unfortunately, being an attorney, it does sometimes cause a meeting to become quite acrimonious simply by the nature of your role and what you have to do there. And I decided that it was for me. And this particular meeting goes down in the history books as being one of the more acrimonious ones. And he gave me a couple of tips to deal with it. And what had happened was the I was acting for the body corporate, so taking instruction from the trustees. And the trustees were telling me one story, and I was preparing myself for a, for a, a real fight with the owners. And the trustees were actually fighting amongst themselves so much at this annual general meeting that I was, you know, trying to keep them apart more than I was actually trying to. Uh, so you were actually taking the role as bouncer, okay? You know, exactly. And uh, we we had a, a managing agent that was there on her own. She had to chair the meeting. She had to manage the meeting. She had to deal with the quorum and the minutes and answering the questions. And she had, I think, a very poorly prepared Excel spreadsheet and a calculator and very old school, you know, before the days of meeting pal and reconnect you and BCM track and all those fun things. Um, and it was a very cheap open bar. 
Now, since then, I promised myself I was never going to go to a meeting where any alcohol was served, uh, either cheap or expensive, uh, because unfortunately, people, as soon as they start drinking, they don't become, they, they're, they're not. They either become very strong or very clever. Yes. So uh, people had a very long opportunity while votes were being uh, tabulated to, to have quite a few drinks. And uh, they started hanging over this poor portfolio manager to see how she was calculating. And everybody suddenly become, became an Excel spreadsheet expert and were trying to uh, influence her calculations. And as I was trying to help her keep everyone away from her, two tr a trustee and an owner started having a go at each other. And I thought I was, um, you know, strong enough to be able to pull the two gentlemen apart. And in the middle of it, I got a whack uh, between them. So I was not very pleased with that and marched on out and proceeded to have a good old cry in my car and phone my mommy and daddy. So that was <laughs> that was my um, my story of a, of an acrimonious meeting. And then oh the told me, make sure that you find an excuse to not hang around when there is an opportunity yeah. for owners to like walk around and things like that. Don't be at a meeting where mm -hmm. alcohol is served. Make sure there is a stage Good. or a table or a podium between you and the owners. You know, go take a phone call in inverted commas, go to the ladies' room, go to your car, uh, make sure that there's more people from the managing agent's office um, you know, at the at the meeting or take a colleague with you. So the following meeting at that body corporate, because I went back again, the following meeting, I took Anton Kelly with me from Paddox and he was my big strapping mm -hmm. advisor and uh, they did not misbehave again at that meeting and I had a lot more confidence and from there it got better. One of my colleagues that used to work with me, they had a meeting where the owners didn't trust the managing agent and trustees to such an extent that they brought a voting box um, like you get at the voting stations for for the really? and yeah. duct tape, ropes, and they duct taped and roped the box closed to make sure that the box was secured until one of the owners could go with the managing agent to their office to go and count the votes. So there's a lot of interesting things. I'm sure these are mild stories compared to some of the ones that you've uh, Now, I'm getting more and more ideas for this book. Um, <laughs> you, you actually have me excited there. So, Linda, I would like to take this, um, make use of this opportunity to thank you for promoting our industry, for providing so much information on all possible platforms for calling of these very, very interesting seminars where just about anyone can attend. Um, and all of this is free of charge. You have no idea how much this means for the industry. And honestly, thank you so much for that. And that brings me to the end, Zelinda. Um, where can my listeners get hold of you or your company or learn more about what services you provide? So they can check us out on our website. It's www.tvdmconsultants.com. They can pop us an email, info at tvdmconsultants.com. 
They can take a look at our Facebook page, our LinkedIn page. They are more than welcome to join our community pool, sectional title living in South Africa. If they are portfolio managers, the portfolio manager support group on Facebook as well. And uh, once again, I would like to thank you for, for your participation and all the role players in this effort. And you actually make me excited. It, it seems like things are going to happen. So listeners, be on the lookout, be on the listen, look at the websites and uh, be informed of what's happening in our industry. Thank you so much, Sir Linda. This was Fitzsons Property Exchange, hosted by Pearl Skeltimer. Not only do we keep you informed on the very latest in the property industry, we also empower by expanding your knowledge base. Make sure to visit www.fitzon.co.za to find out more about sectional title scheme management, letting, sales and trustee training. Remember to subscribe to our channel and follow us on all our social platforms.